Welcome back to El Nino Speaks, everyone. Today, I'm delighted to have Michael Quinn Sullivan, the publisher of Texas Scorecard. What is new with you, Michael? You know, it is a it's a fabulous day to be in Texas and not anywhere else. Quite honestly, that's that's the best part of every day. Yes, uh, I can 100% agree. Having lived in Texas the majority of my life. So could you briefly tell my audience about your background and the work you currently do? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm uh, one. I'm just honored to be on the show with you. Glad to uh, get the chance for us to uh, to visit. You know, I'm a native Texan. I graduated from Texas A&M University and ended up uh, without a kind of meaning to stumbled into journalism. Um, was a, a newspaper reporter up in North Texas with uh, zero interest in politics and public policy, government, any of those things. Really, you know, I, I, you know wanted to cover crime, maybe do some lifestyle reporting, that kind of stuff. And as it turned out, though, my editor sent me to cover a city council meeting, which to me felt like, you know, some sort of ring of hell. Uh, but I look at the agenda and I saw that they were uh, proposing in, in that one meeting a, uh, a big tax increase. They were proposing a tax abatement for Walmart. And they were uh, going to consider a proposal to mandate that everyone in the city get permission from the city uh, before painting their front door. And I thought, wow, this is a whole lot of stuff that the city council's doing. There, it's probably going to be a madhouse. And I show up at that meeting and was shocked to find that I was the only person in the room not paid by the city to be there. Everyone else, city employees, not a single citizen, not a single taxpayer was there. And uh, that's what kind of pushed me into uh, caring about public policy and politics and government. And that, and that interest has uh, stuck through now to Texas Scorecard, where we try to uh, help folks see how they can be more effective as citizens and try to give them a, a sense of what's going on in the Lone Star State and in local governments where they can have an impact and an influence. All right. Yeah, I've kept up with Texas Scorecard for a while, and I really enjoy the work you do. So you've been in the Texas political scene, from what I've gathered, for a significant amount of time. What motivated you? Is, is that a polite way of saying that I'm old? Is that kind of the, <laughs> well, it's all a matter of perspective because there, there are <laughs> there are some people who are veterans at just failing at stuff. But for me, it's more of like the people who gather valuable experience and put in a do great work that piques my interests. So. What would you say motivated you to focus more of your time in state level politics? Yeah, so I did a a stint working in Washington D.C. for a member of Congress, you know, a fellow who I liked and respect and enjoyed working for, but I just really despised working in Washington. And and when I came to the realization that I despised, it wasn't necessarily because. Of the, of the various issues at play in Washington at the time, it was more that I realized that the, you know, the, the federal government was just so blasted big, this big, massive entity that, uh, you know, you could set off 
you know, all the explosives in the world next to it, and you're not going to really knock it off course. You know, it is a just a big lumbering beast. And yet, on the other hand, at the state level and certainly at the local level, there are real opportunities for people to make a real difference in government. And I tell this, it's, it's slightly apocryphal, but it's mostly true. Someone can be considered wildly successful in Washington, D.C. as an activist, as a lobbyist, as a member of Congress, if they get a hearing about something. Not that they do something, but they get a hearing about something. And there are people who will spend 10, 15, 20 years of their, of their lives just trying to get a a bureaucracy or or Congress to have a hearing about a topic, whereas in at the state level, people have the opportunity to make real big, meaningful changes to government, to public policy, to the way government interacts with people. And you can do that almost in real time. If you're going to engage the federal level, you have to be willing to bang your head against a brick wall for a very long time. But for citizens who want to engage meaningfully, they can do so at the state and certainly the local level and and do so very effectively uh, pretty quickly. I'm in full agreement with that. I got into politics through grassroots lobbying, specifically on Second Amendment issues, and I noticed off rip that the biggest successes that a lot of right-wing organizations have had in the past two decades have been at the state level, namely with constitutional carry and a host of other issues too, the pro-life issue as well, school choice. And from what I've seen too at the federal level, there are massive barriers to entry in terms of money, the networks you have to have to be relevant. Whereas If you take a political novice, you could plug them into a municipal county level race. They could have like a surprising performance there. That's one reason why I tell people to focus more of their attention locally or like state level as opposed to federal level, especially when they don't pan out at the federal level. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Now, at Texas Scorecard, you guys pull no punches when dealing with the Texas political establishment What issues do you guys mostly focus on when it comes to holding politicians accountable? Yeah, so you know, for for us, it's it's kind of a you know a a range of things. What I say is, we are interested in what citizens are interested in. I've always you kind of roll my eyes when I look at my colleagues in the media who are just so transparently gross about trying to make the citizenry care about something. I think, you know, as a, as a self-governing people and our self-governing republic, uh, the citizens should be setting the agenda, not the media, not the lobbyists, not the politicians. And so at, you know, at Scorecard, we try very hard to put our focus and our emphasis on those stories, on those narratives, on those issues you know, that we hear citizens talking about and asking questions about with that in mind, then we also try to do that in the context of, of reality. In the 21st century, with Fox News and Twitter and everything happening in you know, the, the nine-second news cycle or whatever, everything kind of boils down to, a, uh, you know, to that lowest common denominator of federal politics and you know, elephant versus donkey. 
and that's fun. That's cute. And I'm a, I'm fighting Texas Aggie. So, you know, I can, I can home team you better than anyone, right? You know, no matter what the Aggies do, they're, they're always the best, you know, but you know, that's fine for college football, but it's not so good for governing your state or your nation. Um, but yeah, that's where we are. And so as a result, you know, it, every topic gets boiled down to, oh my gosh, you know, what are those horrible Democrats doing? If you're a Republican, if you're a conservative in Texas, it's very easy to say, oh my gosh, we're not advancing on Second Amendment issues or on tax issues or else because of the Democrats. And you're allowed to say that and walk away. And too many citizens will say, oh yeah, well, you know, on Fox News, they talk about how horrible the Democrats are on all those things. And yet the governing reality in Texas is that Democrats really can't stop anything. There's no public policy initiative. Uh, there's no change in law. There's nothing that they can actually stop. Um, and they certainly can't impose their wishes because the t- Republicans have controlled state government uh, since 2002. We've had the governorship since 1994, every statewide office uh, since 98. And, and like I said, then, then add in both chambers of the legislature since 2002. You know, so that when we see uh, as conservatives, uh, issues and initiatives not advancing. It's not because of Democrats. It's because of Republicans. And it, and it makes yeah. people very uncomfortable yeah. when I say that. <laughs> but it's true. And I'm sorry that it's true. I wish that it wasn't true. I also wish that I still had, you know, my my thick, curly brown hair. And, you know, I, you know, that I could you know, <laughs> run a marathon and, you know, you know, in two hours, you know, that's not reality anymore. You know, I'm I'm getting old and I'm balding and getting gray and all that kind of stuff. That, that's reality. We can either talk about reality or we can live in a fantasy. But when you live in a fantasy, you're going to be ruled by tyrants. If you live in reality, you have the chance to fight and live free. Yeah, when you live in political in a political fantasy, you're going to get a really nasty, rude awakening. And that's one thing I learned when I was doing lobbying is to always look at what politicians do, especially their votes, who funds them, what kind of committees they chair and all of that, as opposed to their rhetoric, because a lot of people, unfortunately, buy into the letter that's beside their name, a politician's name, and the rhetoric they spew on the campaign trail or on Fox News, but really don't pay attention to their actual behavior. And yeah, and, and in so many ways, we, we've made it difficult for citizens to know what's going on. It, uh, and we, we call ourselves Texas Scorecard. We think that the citizens should be keeping score. But the only way a citizen can keep score is if they actually know what's actually going on. And yet the legislature makes it very difficult for folks to participate in committee hearings because the way they, they schedule them, they make it difficult to find out how they actually voted. And so as a result, as a citizen, you know, all of us as citizens need help in knowing what these guys really do as opposed to what they tell us that they might do or might have done. Now, in the COVID-19 era, we saw a diverse array of policies ranging from draconian lockdowns in your typical blue states to milk toast type of lockdowns and masking policies in ostensibly red states to the more freedom-oriented policies of like South Dakota and Florida. 
How would you rate the Texas GOP's uh, response to COVID-19? I feel like that Texas, I would say this, whether it's talking about COVID-19 or almost any other issue, Texas benefits by not being California. And we often sell ourselves and talk about ourselves in terms of not being California. Oh, well, you know, we didn't do things in COVID and the pandemic as bad as Gavin Newsom did, as bad as California did. And people say, oh, yay, way to go, Texas, big superstars, you know. But look, if you're the least drunk person at a bar, you still shouldn't drive home. If you're the least drunk person at a bar, you're still a model of sobriety. But yet in public policy, we're all expected to say the least drunk people are our heroes and our champions, when in fact, we as citizens should want sober-minded policies. And to that end, uh, Texas was only only slightly better than California during COVID. We were only slightly better than so many of these other states. We did too many bad things, whether it was keeping the economy shut down, fining, even jailing business owners for uh, trying to provide for their families and for their employees' families. Those are not things that you saw happen in other Republican-run states. So in that regard, you know, I give Texas a, a low C to a high F as compared to conservative states. Again, if all you want to do is compare yourself to liberal states, then yeah, Texas is always great, right? But we should be about comparing ourselves not to what the other states are doing, but comparing ourselves to what we say our ideals and our values and our principles are. Would you extend that same logic to the overall like uh, governorship of Greg Abbott during his time in office and just like the GOP in general over the past two decades in Texas? Oh, absolutely. I would. I think that it, it is frustrating to see that for you know, literally 20 years, Republicans have campaigned on, we're going to be cutting your property taxes. We're going to be reining in the burden of of big government and property taxes and this kind of stuff. But yet, what we find is property taxes are higher than ever. Property taxes have never been more burdensome. Uh, Government spending has never been higher. My family can attest to that about the property taxes. They got forced out of their house in North Dallas. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so, so this is where we have to be willing to speak honestly to this. And that's not to say vote Democrat, because Democrats no. just want to make it worse. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, the Democrats literally want to make it worse. So you, you can actually be intellectually honest and say Republicans haven't delivered and also don't be a Democrat. Now, those, those, those are not <laughs> those are not uh, uh, contradictory ideas. But, you know, Governor Abbott, he talks a good game, but yet. You know, where is the property tax relief? He talks a good game, but, you know, the, the border isn't any more secure. We can just go down the line of these issues and see that too many of our Republican officials talk a good talk in the even numbered years of campaigns, but then they fail to perform in the odd numbered years. But less someone, less you or someone else think that I'm all I want to do is bash on the on the officials, which I'm happy to do, by the way. And, I'll, and, and we can spend all your time bashing on these guys. Want. But but we got to remember the real fault, Jose, is with you and me and all of our friends who, after someone promising us everything we want to hear and then violating those promises, we then keep reelecting them. 
at some point, the onus is on us as the voter and us as the, the primary voter to start punishing, to start firing these people who are betraying our confidence. I want to touch upon the property tax question because that's been a really hot button issue in Texas politics for some time. And as I mentioned before, it's something that really directly impacted my family and countless other people in North Dallas and even pretty much all the major urban centers in Texas. So are there any elected officials offhand that you know of who are proposing some viable solutions to that problem? There are a number of folks, I think you like uh, Steve Toth and Brian Slayton, uh, Tony Tinderholt, Maze Middleton, Paul Bettencourt. These are names of you know state legislators who no one even in their district even knows. But but those are but but there are folks who are starting to look uh, seriously at making proposals uh, to wean us from property taxes. The the real problem. This is where everyone starts getting getting weak in the knees when you start talking about property taxes, is you can't actually address property taxes until we're willing to have a grown-up and adult conversation about public education spending. Public education spending represents somewhere, depending on where you live, 45% to 60% of your overall property tax burden. And so until we're willing to have these conversations about what we expect public education to spend money on, we will always just end up spending more money on public education, which means higher property taxes. And now there, there, there are ways to, you know, to address the property tax problem without addressing the spending problem, but that just transfers the costs and the burdens from, you know, from your property tax pocket to your sales tax pocket. And honestly, we probably need to be doing a little bit of both, talking about both the the how much money is being spent question and on what in public education. But we should also be talking about the actual efficacy of using property taxes to fund public education. Property taxes made a lot of sense to fund public education a century ago, a century and a half ago, when everyone lived within five miles of where they worked and everyone lived and worked and you know, went to church and everything all within, you know, walking distance almost of their homes. But today, most Texans drive through multiple school districts when they go from their home to their work. And it's very strange, though, that we assign home property taxes and we require kids to be in the, in the school based on where mom and dad sleep at night. <laughs> you know, that's a weird system in the 21st century. Absolutely. And it desperately needs a overhaul. Now, shifting gears to the immigration question, this is one issue that I'm particularly emphatic about, and I write a ton of content with regards to it. Texas has taken an interesting set of policy positions, specifically this so-called like Operation Lone Star program. Now, I have a friend, Pedro Gonzalez, who has covered this, this program in an article where he actually critiqued it, and he critiqued it from the right. Is there any validity yeah. to concerns about this program? And is it, does it just really look like more performance art than actual like substantive reform when dealing with immigration? 
Yeah, you know, Pedro Gonzalez, you know, anyone who has not tracked his writing on Operation Lone Star and on the problems uh, with Operation Lone Star um, is doing themselves a big disservice. If, if you're at all interested in border policy and quite honestly, Every single human being who lives in Texas should be concerned about border policy. Yes. Um, Pedro Gonzalez's work there has been nothing but, uh, but, but but stellar. Yeah, and his criticisms are, are exactly right. It, it, it truly is a performance art, I think is the word you used. And it, and it does a huge disservice. And it, I, even as I say that, I, I feel horrible and mean and nasty saying that because you've got some really amazing young men and young women in the Texas military forces in uh, who work in law enforcement um, who are participating in, in, in Operation Lone Star, um, but who, you know, th- they will tell you they are being misused. They will tell you that the, you know, that the goals and the objectives and the, you know, the, the mission parameters are all completely out of whack uh, because it really is a photo op more than it is a, a substantive effort to deal with the border problem. We're spending a lot of money as Texans supplementing, if you will, the border patrol, but yet the federal government does not want to fix this. The current occupant of the White House and the um, and the, and the the federal bureaucracy has no interest in doing what's going to take to get illegal immigration under thumb. And so, as a result, Operation Lone Star is just kind of providing really cool backdrops for photo ops for politicians who are on the ballot in this even-numbered year. Yeah, that's what I gathered. What did you make of the proposals that former state senator Don Huffines and former congressman Alan West put forward during the gubernatorial primaries in the GOP with regards to immigration? Because it looked like they wanted the state government to assume a lot of the traditional functions that the federal government was in charge of with regards to immigration. We're in a place that our founding fathers never envisioned. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. you can honestly, you know, the, for, for as smart as our founding fathers were, they didn't envision this. You know, the situation we're in, and um, and, and so as a result, they're you know, everyone is playing. Everyone who doesn't really want to solve things are playing the game, saying, "Well, you know, we really got to wait for the federal government to make the first move on this." And I think that. What Don Huffines and Alan West and others have been have been suggesting, and I'm going to put words in their mouths here, so you know, forgive me. What they're essentially suggesting is, you know, maybe we should try and do something different. Maybe we should try, and and maybe what we will find out is it's not effective. Maybe what we will find out is that it is inefficient. Maybe what we'll find out is, you know, hey, it it actually is violative of federal law and the federal constitution. But maybe we should try. Because what we are currently doing is hurting lots of people. We are hurting people who are being smuggled across the border. We are hurting uh, people who are you know, the recipients of the elite you know, or on the receiving end of the illegal guns and the illegal drugs and all the cartel efforts. You know, lots of people are being hurt by what we are currently doing. So let's try something different. And the you know the status quo of public policy does not want to try something different. They never want to try something different. They want to do what we've always done because that's safe. Unfortunately, where we are 
people are being hurt and maybe people will continue to be hurt, but let's try, let's try and do something different. I think that, you know, Ken Cuccinelli, the former attorney general of, um, of Virginia, uh, along with Russ Vaught, who was the director of OMB under Donald Trump and his organization, the, uh, the Center for Renewing America, they have put together a very persuasive case that, um, you know, under the U.S. Constitution, because our founding fathers did envision invasion. And then how you define invasion? Are we really in an invasion right now? When you think of 20, 30,000 people a day coming illegally across the border, according to a border patrol and the Department of Public Safety, that feels like an invasion, even if they're not wearing uniforms. Uh, but according to Ken Cuccinelli, our founding fathers didn't envision a situation where a state could be invaded by a foreign actor and not yet have time to get the federal government to react because of the, you know, the technology of the day, horseback message riders and things. And so the states do have the ability uh, to repel invasions. And that's where Ken Cuccinelli and Russ Vaught are suggesting that the states should utilize that section again. Maybe we find you're not, you know, you really shouldn't do that. <laughs> but maybe let's also, let, let's ask the question in a way beyond Sunday morning talk shows. Carrie Lake, who is the Republican uh, gubernatorial nominee there in Arizona, has said that's what she's going to do the first day as governor, is declare an invasion at Arizona's southern border. And, and that means you shift from treating the situation at the border as a law enforcement action, and you start treating it as a military action. And I suspect that when the full might of Texas military forces, those uh, young men and women with the latest in you know, warfare technology, um, have that aimed at the illiterate 19-year-old cartel guy, he's probably going to think twice about you know, who he wants to anger. But until the states get serious, until the federal government serious, they thrive under the status quo. The bad guys are thriving under the status quo. Oh, absolutely. And I've long argued that the situation in Mexico is actually the U.S.'s number one geopolitical threat, as opposed to what a lot of people in the D.C. foreign policy blob what suggests who are more concerned about getting into quagmires like thousands of miles away. And in fact, a lot of like the U.S.'s peer competitors and rivals could potentially turn a lot of Mexican cartels into proxies. That's why I agree with retired Lieutenant Colonel Douglas McGregor, who says that there should actually be troops at our border from Texas to Arizona because California is completely checked out. But like in these red states, there definitely should be putting military assets there. Yeah. I think this is weird. You know, and you asked earlier about my my rating of Greg Abbott, and I'll, I'll kind of circle back to that and just note that Greg Abbott, um, I think, envisions himself as a contender for the presidency in 2024, 2025. He certainly spends a lot of time. His team spends money um, in those early primary states, or at least they have over the past, past couple of years. And as a result, Many of his actions uh, seem to be triggered based around how will Republican primary voters in early states perceive his actions as governor and set aside to think about the efficacy and the morality and everything else of that. 
what that has translated practically into is that when Ron DeSantis comes out like he did a couple of weeks ago and says, I'm going to cut sales taxes and property taxes in Florida, two days later, Greg Abbott says, I'm going to use half of the surplus to cut property taxes by $17 billion. When Ron DeSantis got rid of mask mandates during COVID, Greg Abbott followed a week beyond. There's been this very clear Abbott following other, other Republicans. So when you have a Carrie Lake declare an invasion at her border, when you have Ron DeSantis send his uh, Florida uh, National Guardsmen to Arizona to help, I suspect that's when you will see Greg Abbott take bolder action is because he's, he's waiting to see what other people do and how it polls. Indeed. Now, do you guys give out official endorsements for political candidates running for office? We do not. In the past, I did endorsements. And quite honestly, I just um, have more and more decided that it is better to give uh, give my fellow Texans um, our honest assessment of the good and the bad of, of all the various uh, incumbents, candidates, and, and stay away from endorsements that I, I know for me, for my organization, I feel like that when, uh, when, when we get in the business of endorsing a candidate, uh, there is this unfortunate uh, tendency that I think grips all of us who endorse where suddenly we can no longer say something critical of a person we've endorsed, right? Because, you know, we, we don't want to uh, see our Dorsey lose an election. And in the same way, when a when the person that we didn't endorse does something good, there's that kind of incentive not to mention it. Oh, no, can't mention that the other guy may have had a, had a good idea because then he might win. And so I just decided it was better for us to step out of endorsements and to instead try as best as possible to reflect reality of where the candidates stand, where the incumbents have been doing right and doing wrong, and also, you know, reporting on the endorsements of local organizations, single-issue organizations, and and their reviews also. I think that's a better place for us to be than, you know, trying to, trying to suggest that, you know, trust us, we can both endorse a candidate and be fully objective about how they how they behave and all the things they do and don't do. I, in my experience, that becomes difficult. And if nothing else, it strains the credulity of the voter who says, oh, well, you know, I trust Sullivan and I'm sure he's not lying to me, but maybe he's coloring the truth a little bit here. And I want to be I want to stay as far out of the coloring the truth business as possible. The truth is the truth, no matter how inconvenient it might be. I'm a big contrarian, so I tend to see every political organization and their dog always issuing endorsements. So it's kind of nice to see other organizations like Texas Core Card take a more nuanced approach to this issue because, yeah, there's always dangers that lie within endorsements because a politician that may appear solid in a given legislative cycle could just be a total dud. I'll be honest. I have endorsed those duds. <laughs> you know, I've done, me. I've done that. You know, the guy comes in. He tells us what we want to hear. He tells you know he, on paper he looks like he's going to be great, but but what we what we find though is you know once they get in, once they start wanting to to please the 
the establishment, please the leadership, please the lobbyists, all those promises, all those principles um, end up uh, being worth less than the paper they were written on. And, and, and I'm tired of then having to go back and explain you know, why it was we endorsed this cat. And I think that being out of the endorsing business makes us better reporters for, for the citizens. As far as Republicans in the Texas state legislature go, who are the select few that you believe are fighting for the interests of grassroots Texas conservatives? Uh, wow, that's a small list. And, and, and I say with all sincerity, despite you know, having shook my voice, you know, laugh or you cry. There is a, a new member of the legislature. He's elected in a special election named Brian Harrison, who has been incredibly impressive here over the past year, calling out excesses and abuses. Uh, he, he only served, I mean, I, I think like a week in the, in the legislature after winning his special election. So we don't really know how he will perform in the legislative cycle, but, but Brian Harrison has been very quick. He's, uh, I believe, from uh, Waxahachie, has been very quick to offer a grassroots view of issues and you know, calling, calling out the problematic things um, happening. Uh, so that's been very encouraging. I think Brian Slayton, a state rep from East Texas. Um, you've also got uh, Tony Tinderholt from Arlington. On a good day, Steve Toth from the Woodlands is willing to do that sort of thing. Um, the, the Texas Senate um, is, is maybe more problematic, although with Mays Middleton from Galveston going in, uh, that, that feels like he's going to be maybe a, a little shot in the arm they need there. Now, Paul Betancourt has, uh, in this Texas Senate has been he says the right things, and then he kind of gets pulled off into, into other things occasionally. Many uh, such there, cases. There are a couple of folks who, yeah, many cases, yeah, who will, uh, when, when given the opportunity to do the right, when, when they have no other choice but to do the right thing, they will do the right thing. And that often just requires having someone like Bob Hall, who's a member of the Texas Senate, who's just willing to go in and be hated by everyone and force them to do the right thing then they will follow along. And we need a couple of more guys like that in the Texas House and the Texas Senate um, who will be willing to anger the lobby and frustrate the legislative leadership, not be invited to the cocktail parties. It doesn't take a majority of conservatives to move the legislature. It just takes enough who will be willing every day on the floor of the House, the floor of the Senate, uh, to be uh, to be pushing their fellow lawmakers to uh, to do the right thing. Now, before we wrap things up, you're a certified veteran of Texas politics and have seen probably all sorts of shenanigans take place. What would you say have been the most significant changes that have occurred in Texas politics from the time you entered the political scene up until the present? I think maybe the most encouraging thing uh, that I have seen occur has been the transformation of the citizens' understanding of the power of the speakership in the Texas House. For a long time, no one knew who the Speaker of the House was in Texas, and that was it was kind of a it was always treated as a as an afterthought position. 
know, the guy was responsible for making sure the electric bill was paid and the committees had somewhere to meet. That was literally the way our uh, the framers of our state constitution envisioned the office of the speaker. Along the way, it started gathering lots and lots of power. It is now um, the lieutenant governor is still the most powerful elected official in Texas. Um, but the speaker of the House is is, a, is now a close second um, in terms of the influence and authority the speaker of the House wields over the public policy process. And again, for a long time, that position uh, operated in complete obscurity. Fortunately, voters and taxpayers have begun waking up to that, where you start, you've begun to see the question of who who are you going to vote for as speaker? You know, why did your speaker allow this? Why did your speaker? Where you see those kind of questions coming from from the grassroots to their elected officials? Um, no longer can people hide behind the anonymity of that office. I think that's a very very positive thing. I, I've also been been frustrated though by watching, and then this is this is the the not good. Uh, change that has happened has been that of of us seeing uh, so many um, uh, kind of revolving doors from elected office into the into the crony lobby establishment in Austin. You know that is uh, you know you would like to think that when you know the fella who whose kid is in the same soccer league as your kid or the lady who, you know, she goes to the church your parents used to go to or all those kind of things. When they get elected to the legislature, they're doing so even if they are wrong about issues, that they're at least doing so having been motivated by a sincere desire to do the right thing. Even if they're wrong in what the right thing is, they're motivated by a sincere, sincere desire to do the right thing. Instead, though, with the, you know, to, today you have more legis- former legislators as lobbyists than ever before, making big bank, making big dollars, profiting off of the highly complex laws and rules that they helped usher through. You know, by, by helping people navigate the exemptions through um, essentially cashing in on that legislative service. And that is a huge disservice to the citizens of Texas. When someone gets elected to the Texas legislature, you and I should not be sitting there worried that they are preening to be hired in eight years by you know some lobby firm there in Austin. Um, but yet that's precisely what's happening. And I would suggest again, though, for as much as you know, I can wag my finger at the former legislators and the current legislators who want to be lobbyists when they're done, ultimately, all of these political problems, all of these frustrating things that we see, those are on you and me, on our fellow Texans, uh, to begin correcting. Politicians are ultimately reflections of us. To the extent that we ignore them, that's the extent to which they go wild. And you and I and all of us have to be more informed, more engaged, louder and more effectively louder uh, than the other side if we are going to see Texas prosper. Yep, I 100% co-signed that message. And I think this is a great place to put a bookmark in this discussion, Michael. And I had a great time chatting with you. Could you tell my listeners where they can stay up to date with your latest projects? 
Yeah, we'd love to have folks check out texasscorecard.com. Uh, very easy, texasscorecard.com. Uh, there they can find uh, just kind of our, our daily cycle of news. Our investigative team is constantly uh, digging deeper into stories and into issues. So some great work by our investigative team. Uh, meanwhile, we have a large and growing podcast catalog of uh, folks who uh, who we work with there. So love for people to check those out. I have a podcast every Friday, about four minutes, kind of a little reflection on whether scripture or on uh, politics, quirky things in history and everything in between. Uh, so they can check that out. But again, texasscorecard.com is where they can find us. Awesome stuff. And to my wonderful audience, it's always a pleasure having you tune in. And until next time, El Nino has spoken.